my pleasure as acting president of Wolfson College to welcome all of you today to this mini symposium addressing the question, what is e-research? The purpose of today's event is to introduce the new strategic collaboration that has been established between the digital research cluster at Wolfson College and the Oxford e-research center based on Keeble Road. Since becoming president of Wolfson in 2008, Professor Dame Hermione Lee has worked to foster interdisciplinary research within the college. This has led to the establishment of a number of interdisciplinary research clusters in subjects including South Asia, the ancient world, and mind, brain, and behavior. The digital research cluster at Wolfson was established in 2010. The cluster brings together researchers for whom the web is an important platform and who are interested in sharing ideas and methodologies that could bring mutual benefits. All four divisions of the university are represented in the digital research cluster, making it exactly the sort of cross-disciplinary activity the college is so enthusiastic to foster. Without further ado, I'd like to introduce Donna Kurtz, the director of the digital research cluster at Wolfson. Uh, I will speak only uh, very briefly. Uh, thank you all for coming. You may well wonder how we got here. Um, as, as acting president has briefly explained, uh, president said it would be a good idea if we thought about having uh, research clusters. That was in 2009, 8, 9. And I'd been using digital technologies for a very long time. And I had found them to be extremely useful for crossing disciplines and for bringing people together. And as you probably know, Wolfson is a very large uh, college, very international graduate. It seemed to me to be perfect for this sort of uh, research cluster. Then in 2011, I was miraculously parachuted into uh, OERC. Uh, the university's E uh, Research Center. Um, you probably do know that unlike uh, the both Latinx School and the Saeed Business School and the Martin School and the Smith School, this is not something that a large amount of external money uh, was put into with, with an agenda. This is the university realizing a need to cross disciplines and use technology to um, facilitate uh, research. So I was extremely happy there, and I thought, let's bring these things together. They obviously have, have uh, elements in common, but it was not at all clear to me how to do this. And that's why I would like you to join me in thanking very, very warmly David Roby. Without his uh, hard work, uh, both within the college and within uh, OERC, uh, we wouldn't be where we uh, are today. And I thought this was, it, this is a very unusual event. And I thought we should celebrate. So we've, we've uh, splurged and we've had the bubbly for uh, tonight. <laughs> and since it's a very packed uh, a program, I would just like to close by um, thanking the college for its very, very warm support and thanking the management committee of OERC for its support. And I'd now like to introduce its director, uh, Professor David DeRuar, who will uh, tell you more about the center. Thanks very much, Donna. Thank you for the image of you parachuting in. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to move over to the, the digital. So my name's uh, David DeRuar. I'm the 
current director of the e Research Centre. I've been in Oxford for about five years. I'm a supernumerary fellow in Wolfson. Very pleased to be here and very pleased to, to be here this evening uh, in order to, uh, to sign our, our memorandum of understanding. Um, the centre is celebrating 10 years next year. And uh, the, the, the founding director, um, Andrew Fethen, some of you will know, went on from being director of the e-research centre to being chief information officer and, and PVC of uh, museums and collections. Uh, so I took over as the director three years ago. Um, we are a multidisciplinary centre. When people ask me in college dinners what discipline I am, I have really no idea whatsoever. <laughs> if they ask me what I do, I know what I do. I direct a multidisciplinary centre and it's fantastic. It's a great privilege to work with. It's about 50 researchers in the centre, uh, mainly postdocs. Um, our job is to innovate in digital research methods, but across all disciplines. So as, as Donna said, we, we work across the whole university. We work with all divisions. Um, this is captured, not, not quite completely, <laughs> by the, uh, the, the, the sort of uh, partners and projects that we're involved in on the screen here. I'll say a little bit more about those. The e-research centre actually sits in mass physics, life sciences, but our role is very much across the whole of the university. Um, one of our sort of related centres that you'll see up here is the Oxford Internet Institute, which sits in Social Sciences Division and also has quite a digital and quite an interdisciplinary brief. One of the things that holds us all together, including with Wilson, um, is this particular area of study, which is digital humanities. So whereas other universities um, may have created departments of digital humanities, Oxford, given its... its uh, tremendous strengths across so many parts of the university in humanities has taken a different approach, which is to have a digital humanities strategy. So under the auspices of TORCH, the Oxford Research Centre in the Humanities, and we've connected up all these departments um, and uh, uh, come together annually in the digital humanities at Oxford Summer School, which has been held here a couple of times. Um, it's the second biggest summer school on the planet. It's, uh, it takes a lot of planning and everyone gets together regularly throughout the year and then for a whole week doing it. And it's really brought together this, this fantastic network of people. So there's quite a strong digital humanities piece here. But we're, we're digital, and we, um, I can easily talk about technology, about high-performance computing, and we'll be hearing about the, the, the importance uh, in the facilities we have there in a little, little bit later. Um, but the way that scholarship is done is not just about technology. It's about the people. It's about the social. So whereas we've got a strong data-intensive research angle to our work, um, we also have, a, if you like, social-intensive or human-intensive angle as well. So another sort of network across the university are our engagements in this area that we call social machines, which is very much looking at that world where large amounts of technology come together with large numbers of people. It's not just big data, but it's the, it's the data being created by people as they interact with the digital world. It's the, paper, it's the data being analysed by people through, for example, uh, citizen science projects like Sooniverse and climateprediction.net. So you see... A number of people there involved, not just in the data-intensive side of research, but in the, in the society-intensive side. There are a number of other partnerships we have around the university, which are sort of specific multidisciplinary collaborations. That's the Cyber um, Security Centre, for example. But the one I want to highlight here is ARC, Advanced Research Computing, uh, which is where we partner with IT services to provide a, what was once the Oxford Supercomputer Centre. It's now called ARC, and we'll be hearing some more about that later on. This is a very important part of what we do because we have that sort of fundamental ability to do large amounts of computation, which is something that enables us to do research in new ways and entirely new kinds of research. 
And then, of course, the significant partnerships we talked about this evening is this one. <laughs> that I've just added <coughs> to the, uh, the picture just up in the SCR a few minutes ago. And um, this is uh, not the first time that the EV Search Centre and, and Wolfson Digital Research Cluster have come together. And we've been working together in, in many ways over the last few years. I, too, really want to thank Donna and David for, for uh, you know, bringing us together and seeing the opportunities. Um, I want to talk also in passing here about another significant partnership, and this is partly because I want to explain to people who you need to go to to talk about what. So the Bodleian Library is an important partner, as you can see, in the digital humanities work, in our social machines work. Um, also has very good connections with uh, Wolfson and the Digital Research Cluster. Um, and in the Bodleian Library, we have the Centre for Digital Scholarship, which is in the, in the Western building. And this helps me explain to you the different roles of the different people in, in, this, in this diagram. So in the e-research centre, we're researchers and we come up with new ways of doing research. We have new digital methods. We use the infrastructure, the e-infrastructure, the devices that are now available to do that. Our expertise is in, in, is in you know, that sort of underlying technical piece, but applying it, translating it into different areas of study. Um, in IT services, there uh, is excellent support for research computing as well through ARC and through teams of, of people working there with a remit to provide a service to the Festival University. We're not really a service in OERC. We are a building full of researchers. Bodden Library Centre for Digital Scholarship is a, a place where these things come together, where the, uh, the new digital methods for doing research, for doing scholarship, by which I mean research for uh, academics and for students, but also in public engagement, um, comes together with the amazing collections that we have uh, in the <coughs> university, in the Bodleian Library, um, and with all the facilities and skills that the Bodleian has in terms of pu uh, public engagement, the engagement of all the different stakeholders. So we're kind of innovating and creating new ways of doing things, and we really want to engage with people to have those discussions and to do that research. Um, this is a place where it's translated to scholarship in Oxford uh, and, and, and beyond over our excellent collections. Um, and then we have IT services and art providing that IT support that's underpinning all of this. So I guess you have a picture of not just what we do in OERC, and you'll hear a lot more about that in a moment, but actually where we sit within the, the digital ecosystem of the University of Oxford. Now, I, should, I think I should probably stop just there. We'd be very happy to have discussions about these things towards the end of, um, of our short presentations. We only have a very small number of PowerPoint slides today. So if I come back over here, <laughs> we'll do the next thing on the agenda which is the signing of the Memorandum of Agreement. Which we have just found. I'm now going to have some very short presentations from some of my colleagues <coughs> in order to tell you about the work going on in the centre. Um, I'd like to introduce three of the associate directors of uh, the e-research centre who have also recently joined the college. 
So first of all, Andrew Richards is going to tell us about the advanced research computing facility and his role as director. Uh, thank you, Dave. So let me find the slide. Okay. Um, okay, so I'd like to tell you just quickly who I am. So I'm Andrew Richards. I am uh, an associate director in the Oxford E Research Centre, but I'm also the head of advanced research computing in IT services. And it's quite a unique proposition uh, of these two activities linked together, which doesn't really exist in any other university in, in the UK where, where people are providing HPC. So it's quite, it's quite unique. So there's lots of pictures on here just to give some pretty background as, uh, as I talk. But ARC is what takes up most of my time. It's part of IT services, where it has this close link with the Oxford E Research Centre. And when people ask me what we do, I like to think of it that we actually have a nice spectrum of activities which go from running production services under the ARC banner through to doing research activities under the OERC banner. And they nicely link together in that whilst we run services for everybody across the university who have data-intensive problems or who have large computational problems under ARC, <clears throat> in order for us to be able to do what we do and provide it in the best possible way. We need the input from people in the OERC like Wares and colleagues who actually understand some of the upcoming technologies in the best possible way and, and that input from the research projects directly drives what we do in production services. So the two nicely fit together. It's a sort of nice link between research and production. And in many other universities it's completely decoupled. In many other universities, particularly in the UK, the provision of HPC is completely decoupled from the research and, and often it's seen as standalone activities who don't fully understand what the researchers are trying to do and that's often a complaint of researchers in, in those universities. So I think in Oxford we have something unique and, and when we moved into IT services uh, in terms of contracts earlier this year to kind of stabilise the funding that underpins HPC in Oxford, it was an important thing that we ensured that the link with the OERC remained and that's why we still actually physically sit in the OERC and why a portion of my time is still spent in the OERC doing research around the provision of e-infrastructure. And in doing that, we, uh, you know, and in doing that, you know, the last sort of 15, 20 years of my life has been spent in doing e-infrastructure type research, whether that's developing the UK, what was called the UK National Grid Service, doing lots of grid computing, doing elements of cloud computing uh, and other aspects. And, and very much so in Oxford today, we're still, you know, I'm still heavily supported both through the OERC and IT services and having that external link. So it's not just about providing things in Oxford, but we have strong links and strong collaborations going on within Science Engineering South, which, which is a grouping of five universities in the south of the UK, so Cambridge, UCL, Imperial, Southampton, and ourselves. But beyond that, we collaborate with a, a number of consortia and activities throughout the UK uh, and internationally with collaborations going on in the US as well. So we're very much engaged in e-infrastructure development and e-infrastructure research that goes beyond Oxford, and it allows us to bring in that best practice knowledge into what we do in the OERC to help colleagues then do sort of world-leading research in various disciplines within the OERC. So that's, in a nutshell, who I am and what I do, and happy to answer any questions later, but in one slide, that's a, a quick summary. <laughs> Thank you very much, Andy. Um, Wes was mentioned um, in his presentation, and he's also an associate director of the centre. Wes's expertise is in uh, scientific computing. Perfect. So, um, who am I, Wes Armour? I look after an awful lot of the scientific computing activities at OERC. Um, my research focus spans quite a few different things, so I've just basically plastered a slide there with lots of different images, and I'll talk through some of them as I go along. 
Um, the first area that uh, I work in is new and novel architecture. So this section of things here. Um, we're very interested in using new computing technologies such as things like GPUs. Um, has anyone heard of GPUs? Yeah, okay, great. So we use things like GPUs, FPGAs, um, Intel's uh, latest product, Xeon Phi, um, to perform high-level compute simulations, so the sort of things that the ARC group, the, the big computers that the ARC group runs, but we're also interested in very lightweight technologies, so things like Intel, Galileo, Edison, and um, this is a, a GPU-CPU hybrid platform called Jetson. And we're interested in those sort of things for uh, data processing where you can't store data and you need to process data using very little energy. So these kind of platforms are great for stuff like that, so in-flight data reduction, things like that. Um, and I'm very interested in applying these technologies to scientific compute. So I work with the art guys in doing that, and then also industry leaders like uh, Altera, NVIDIA, and Intel. Uh, they're some of the big people that we collaborate with at the moment. Um, a lot of the work that I do focuses on uh, models and simulation, and I'm going to talk about two aspects of that that are dear to my heart in the next couple of minutes. Um, I do an awful lot, or, or my group does an awful lot of digital signal processing, uh, and, and that's covered here that I'll mention. And then we do a lot of maths, statistics, um, and physics. So the two examples that I've put on here of, of research that we're currently doing, uh, the first is in radio astronomy. So we do uh, a digital signal processing for time domain radio astronomy. So one of the big projects that we're involved with at the moment is something called the Square Kilometre Array. Um, this will be a radio telescope that will be built across uh, South Africa and Australia. It will span continents. It will tell us new and exciting things about the universe that we live in. Um, the aspect of this that I'm specifically interested in is time domain science. So this is the Crab Pulsar and in, sorry, this is the Crab Nebula and in, in the heart of that is a pulsar. And we're very interested in processing the pulses that come from the pulsar using this kind of technology. Specifically, at the moment, we, we favour GPUs for doing this kind of stuff. So these are some of the pulses that, that this kind of thing emits. Um, to give you an idea of the data rates, this truly is big data. So we're processing around uh, 640 gigabytes of data per second. But when we've reduced it into the data that we're interested in, uh, I worked out back of the envelope calculation that it's something like 80 hours worth of HD TV data every second that we have to process. So we have to have cutting edge technology, very big clusters, work with lots of collaborators to solve that kind of problem. Uh, the other example that I've put on here is research that I do with uh, Simon Hans and Costa Struthers in Cyprus and Swansea. And this looks at something called the graphene bilayer. So we're very interested in using um, theoretical particle physics models to simulate graphene and using that to look at the electronic band properties within graphene. And this latest work uh, studies how electron holes, uh, sorry, holes and electrons between layers of graphene couple and their behavior. So that's a couple of... Um, tastes of, of the sort of thing that I do. Um, wider in terms of the OERC, 
Uh, we have skills that span scientific computing. So the things that we look at are using CUDA for GPUs, low-level programming using uh, vector intrinsics on Intel and Phi. We do OpenCL on uh, FPGAs. And then obviously developing parallel algorithms and the maths and stats that are associated with that. And then a final slide on areas of research. So HPC, many core novel technologies, modeling, so algorithmic and mathematical modeling, obviously simulation, like I just talked about, real-time digital signal processing. And basically, to sum up, um, we like applied computer science. So we really like uh, real-world results that have some impact. They're the things that we like to be involved with. So Fantastic. That's Thanks very much, Riz. Uh, the third associate director uh, this evening is uh, Suzanne Sansoni, who uh, leads our team that's working in the bio area, the bio data sharing, who will tell us about data creation, management, and publication. Thank you. Right, okay, so my name is Susanna Assunta Sansone. Uh, my background is in biology. But actually, 15 years ago, I moved to bioinformatics, and I was at European Bioinformatics Institute, where somehow I became a data scientist. So I'm an example of somebody moving from one career to another, but actually not having a proper career path. I actually learned to be a data scientist by doing the job. Uh, then I joined, actually, five years ago, uh, the, the OERC, as a team leader first, and then as an associate director. But I also, three years ago, I was contracted by Anisha Publishing Group to help them set a data journal. And, and I'm still uh, am a consultant for them and also an honorary academic editor of their data journal course, Scientific Data. So what do I do at the OERC? Um, I run a team, um, and we operate in the, in the life science, uh, broadly covering environmental, biomedical, and natural sciences. We actually have, have a mix of research software engineering, which have a computer science background, but also knowledge engineers, which actually have more a bio background. Um, and like me, they've moved transition from the lab into the computer environment. But we also have a couple of uh, research lecturers because it's very important for us to translate what we do in the research setting, moving it into the training and the formal teaching, because it's important for us to, co to contribute to the creation of career path for data scientists, something which I did not have in my, at the time. Now, in my second slide, I'm going to just summarize the activity that I do in the team and then we do in this area. So if I have to say one line, well, what we do is we enable reproducible research and open science driving science uh, driving science and discovery. So we, we do research with and for scientists, but also um, people producing data, but also other service providers, or with journals, and, and with, uh, with founders as well. So we create enabling technology, which help uh, researchers to better structure the data, better share the data, so they can actually discover something, and then it can drive science forward. So we do a variety of activity uh, which cover uh, data representation, data curation, data collection in the life sciences, of course. We focus on data publication, obviously, working with other journals, not just with the uh, Nature Publishing Group. We are very keen in ensuring that uh, when the data is shared, the provenance of the information is very well tracked. Uh, we work with uh, a lot of uh, groups in different um, 
community developing standard that allowed this data to be shared in a proper and reusable manner. We also developed software as part of the team and in collaboration, and we use in semantic and new technology. And we do training too, because as I said, it's very important to translate the activity we do into um, a teaching activity. And uh, actually in December, uh, we are, uh, we are co-organized and we will launch the first data management, data statistics and analysis module as part of the bioscience doctor training program and, and, and the module there will be other colleagues from URC as colleagues from the Baudelaire Library and, and uh, IT services that will contribute. So I have to say. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Susanna. So we've heard from three of the associate directors of the centre. If you walk through the corridors of Seven Keyboard Road, you'll find uh, the associate directors and their teams. Um, there are other uh, teams about to be represented. So um, I mentioned digital humanities at the, uh, the very beginning. Uh, as an area that I have a uh, sort of particular responsibility for, also under the auspices of Torch. Uh, but you might be wondering where it is, and here it is. Yeah. <laughs> um, yes, I am Derek I am a postdoctoral research associate at the OERC. My Twitter profile describes me as a uh, linked data in the digital humanities person. Um, gender neutral, that's important. Um, I'm going to spend the next 10 minutes or so just talking about um, some work that, that I've been doing at the centre and, uh, and every single time that you're like really impressed and like wow that's really clever you should look to Kevin because uh, you know he's my boss and the <laughs> mastermind behind it and stuff and also um, or positive feedback through him please <laughs> at the uh, end. So there are actually uh, a number of different really exciting digital humanities projects going on in the centre, but just because of the scope of uh, time available and things like that, I've limited down to just talking about uh, digital music projects. But even in those, there's a bunch of really cool, really exciting, really innovative work happening. And I can say this because I don't work on any of those projects. So I can objectively observe <laughs> brilliance happening um, although one of the problems is that when you find out that one of your colleagues used to be in a band, but he's also your triple store manager, you end up coming up with um, slightly niche nicknames uh, to mock them. Um, that's David Weigel, who's uh, possibly a genius. Um, so yes, there's Fast and there's Slobber. Um, probably other people other than me are, are the best people to, to ask about those. But enough of what I'm not going to talk about. Uh, some of what I am going to talk about, which is the project Transforming Musicology, which I do work on. And uh, it's an Arts and Humanities Digital Transformation large grant theme uh, project. Yes. Um, <laughs> and it brings together a bunch of different sub-projects. And the one I'm going to talk about this evening is one of those sort of sub-projects within it. And that means that I am going to talk about Wagner. Ah, oh, damn it, cue music. Okay, I lost faith. Okay. You can, ah, that died, that killed everything. That killed everything for me. Um, let's see, oh, sorry about that. 
No, you can't tell. So that's excellent. No, that's <laughs> perfect. So what we did was we had an expert musicologist attend a live performance of Richard Wagner's uh, The Ring Cycle, which is performed over four nights and 16 hours. And during the whole time, she sat there using uh, an annotation kit. Uh, let me just play the video again so that you can see her in action, hopefully. But I'll mute it so that you don't have to actually listen to it in action, because that would be horrendous. Uh, sorry for any fans of Wagner in that audience. Right, so she attended 16 hours of operas and she made annotations based on her observation of the live performance. And in order for her to do that, we put together an annotation kit which consisted of existing technologies and tools that enabled her to capture things that were happening, not just musicologically, which she determined from the score itself, but also happening on the stage itself. And she developed a key of symbols two sets, one for things that was determined from the score and the other for things like actor movements and lighting, which are things that are idiosyncratic to that particular performance that she is observing. She then used that, the, those, uh, those symbols on an iPad screen to um, mark up a piece of each, each individual page of the score. You can see the, the annotations that she made in orange there on the screen. And uh, we collected a bunch of different types of information. Uh, there's performance audio, which copyright restrictions means I can't play and also can't make available to anyone. So that's implicit in our system semantics. We, uh, the little bit that you heard is uh, a commercial recording that's been edited to have the same temporal um, encoding that the performance did. So that's sort of okay in so small snippets. Um, but we also had a, a bunch of different things as well. Everything and in our entire data set is associated with a void file that captures information about the data set itself as RDF, and each individual file of each individual type of, da of data file has uh, some information captured about it as well. We used uh, PyMedia Info to generate that, and we also enriched it with some curated data just from a, a, a human user, and all of that is uh, produced and stored as RDF triples. So in order to do that, we developed a fairly complex underlying ontological structure. It's an owl ontology that brings together a bunch of different ones that are already in existence. We used the music ontology for uh, high-level musicological concepts. We also had the event ontology, which was capturing the act of annotation itself, and other things like factors and agents, which were features in non-temporal intervals. We used uh, Provo, uh, provenance ontology for mapping the provenance, and the open annotation data model for representing the, um, the resources as a type of annotation in their own right. So for example, the, the audio files that are generated by the annotator making dictation are considered an annotation rather than just an audio file. We also use media resource to capture multimedia metadata, and we separated the abstract notion of a performance from the physical manifestation, which is the score, but also from the stage action. And in that way, it was, it was an ontological design decision that was kind of in line with Fubaru, but we didn't actually use Fubaru classes and properties uh, to do that. Mm. We also had an awful lot of fun uh, doing some uh, temporal logics and some temporal mappings, including timelines, start days, delays, thank you. Um, we used the timeline ontology uh, to, to map all of that. Um, we, uh, we went through a serialization of events and, and had 
separate events as instances of the timeline interval class, which we could then basically use things like mapping it to the master timeline and to another relevant abstract timeline to show how things connect together temporally. And uh, we used shift maps, and we also used timeline delay property to show the necessary offset, because we have lots of different pieces of technology. All of them have a separate kind of internal clock, and now we have a way of, of, of setting those from each other. So as I mentioned, all the different types of uh, information that we had was implemented at RDF. We combine that with the temporal logics RDF, and that produces a large graph, which itself can be serialized into a subset of navigable linked data. Um, the, the structure also partially lines up with the way that we've stored the files on like the server or, or, or in, our, in our drives. And uh, as I already mentioned, each individual file, so each instance of a video, has its own RDF sidecar. We also link to external data streams, so things like the composer, the arranger, the um, conductor, and the performer are all linked to their music brains IDs as well. We generated uh, this graph using uh, a sort of custom-built uh, Python graph and some templates that were in Turtle. That was pretty exciting. I am really happy to talk about that in detail. If anyone has like four or five hours, um, <laughs> I can show you some examples. Um, and, uh, and actually, I know it was cool because it made it to Izmir, and it was just demoed there in a couple of workshops just last week in Malagato. <laughs> and um, really, honestly, that's, uh, that's basically what I, that's all I have to say, except that it's been a fantastic project so far, and it totally wouldn't have been possible without this incredibly dynamic and hard-working, truly interdisciplinary team that's brought together developers and, and hardcore musicologists, and then kind of weird, bridgey sort of people like me in between. And, uh, and it's just been fantastic. And that's all I've got. Thank you. Fabulous. Thanks, Terry. I think we get a round of applause for that. <laughs> so um, I mentioned at the beginning that, as, as well as the sort of data-intensive uh, research using digital approaches, uh, we, we are socially intensive as well. I mentioned citizen science as, as one of the things we work closely with our colleagues in astrophysics, with Zooniverse and the, the new uh, Zooniverse platform, Panoptes, which enables any of us to log in and create accounts and create citizen science projects, which is, in terms of scholarship, an amazing uh, new way of doing things. Um, we also run from the e-research centre, climateprediction.net, in conjunction with colleagues in, in um, other departments in the Environmental Change Institute, um, which enables many citizens to bring not just their, their brains, but their computers. So this very important problem of studying climate change. So I'll let's introduce Sarah Sparrow to tell us about the volunteer computing activities. Yeah. Hello, I'm Sarah Sparrow, and um, as David said, I work as part of the Climate Prediction.net team, um, who's sort of uh, one of the volunteer computing group who works with the mainly with scientists over in um, geography as part of the Environmental Change Institute. Um, so what is um, climateprediction.net, or CPDN for short, because otherwise it takes me too long saying climateprediction.net all the time. Um, it's a citizen science um, project, and we look to answer questions from anything from climate change through to um, extreme weather event, event attribution. And how do we do this? Well, we get members of the public to donate, to sign up to the project and donate their idle time on their PCs to run our 
climate models for us. And each of the dots on this, this map represents uh, one of the volunteers who signed up for, to the project for us and uh, runs uh, our models. So the project's quite mature. We've been running for around 11 years, and we've got quite a stable base of volunteers um, who run simulations for us. So how do we do this? We use the um, Boink platform, which is um, some technology developed by people in Berkeley. And um, this enables us to sort of wrap up various different uh, what we call work units or, or configurations of our climate model and let members of the public um, sign up to the project, download them, run them on their machines and send them back to us so that we can analyse them. And the real advantage of this kind of technique is the, able, the ability to do very large ensembles. Outside of CPDN, in climate sciences, a large ensemble is something like 50 or 60 ensemble members. Um, in CPDN, we can do kind of 10,000 to sort of hundreds of thousands of ensemble members to look at a particular problem. So um, here I'm just showing a, a graph of projected uh, warming over the coming, coming century, and the red line shows the expected expert range um, from ideas of what the, the climate models are, and the sort of blue plume is our uh, model simulations, and you can see that we kind of span the range, expected expert range quite well, but we also kind of push the boundaries a bit and, and say, well, you know, maybe there's, there's more uh, that we might need to revisit what these, these ranges actually mean. So aside from the kind of climate, predict, uh, climate change questions, we've been looking a bit more about uh, extreme weather event attribution as part of the Weather at Home project. And this is where we're looking at high-impact um, weather events. Now, typically, they're um, quite rare and unpredictable, so they lend themselves very well to being studied by large ensembles. Um, and they also tend to involve small scales. So the way in which we can incorporate this in the project is by embedding a regional climate model of, say, 50 to 25 kilometer um, resolution within our global um, climate model. And by doing this, we can then start to ask questions like, what's the, um, the role of increased greenhouse gas levels in things like uh, flooding in the UK in uh, the autumn and winter? And I've got three pictures here from um, recent uh, winter's flooding events, uh, probably quite a lot of them you remember, and hopefully some of you didn't suffer too much in the, the 2003 floods in, in Oxford. Um, but we're kind of getting a bit more ambitious now in the kinds of um, things we're looking to study. So as part of this World Weather Attribution Project we've got running, we're now looking to try and answer these questions in real time. Um, and... Um, it's really an important questions to answer, not only because we want to do it in real time so that we can kind of tap into the media when it's actually still very interested in the event that's taking place, but also um, because we want to try and inform the sort of communities that are affected, which typically tend to be some of the poorest communities in the world, um, about what the trends in, in risks and change in their vulnerabilities are. So the way we design the experiments, um, we can have several different outcomes. Um, 
human-induced influences may have increased, reduced, or had no detectable influence uh, on the event that we're looking at. Or indeed, maybe our analysis techniques aren't actually capable of working out what's, what's going on. So as part of this um, project, we did a case study on the California drought that was happening, uh, has been happening earlier this year. And um, we did what we consider a kind of typical attribution study where we run an ensemble member with observed conditions, a set of ensembles with observed conditions, and some with um, where we've removed all human influences from that. Um, however, life's never straightforward. And uh, there was this big blob of warm sea surface temperatures in the North Pacific uh, uh, occurring this year, which people were wondering, you know, was this, you know, having a big influence on on the California drought? So we added in another ensemble to um, take a look to see what the impact of that was. And I don't really want to get bogged down in describing what all the sort of results in the graphs are, but... um, by using, by having such large ensemble members, we can get a really good separation between um, our different ensembles, and we can see that in this case, both the presence of this warm blob of, of um, sea surface temperatures and also um, human influences has acted to sort of increase um, getting warm temperature events in, in California. So the consequences of us doing these sorts of studies in in climateprediction.net actually uh, mean that that we've got a few things that we now need to think about. We've got to create data sets on a a monthly basis. We've got people who are expecting to look at the data um, when we've done that. We've also got to distribute these over over 13 regions um, over the globe. And if you start to think that for each region, for each of the ensemble members that we send out, we're, we're looking to send out maybe 20,000 ensemble members um, for, three, for a three-month duration. So um, at any, for any given calendar month, we might have 60,000 ensemble members out there. And if you consider that each one generates around 200 to 300 megabytes of data, you don't need to be a great mathematician to know that these numbers get scarily large very quickly in the amount of data we've got to handle. Um, Also, this World Weather Attribution project we're involved in is only one of seven other projects that we've got ongoing within climateprediction.net that we've got commitments that we, we have to meet. So the bottom line is that we need to add more capacity um, to the system. Now, one way we can do this is obviously go and try and engage the public and, and get them enthused about climateprediction.net and get them signed up to the project. Um, but we've also been thinking of other ways in which we can do this, and, and one way might be to sort of have a, a virtual volunteer by distributing our models over uh, into cloud computing services, such as we've got a pilot project at the moment with Amazon Web Services. Um, so I was asked sort of to say something about what possible wider applications there are for clientprediction.net. I'll start with a, a shameless plug. Please, <laughs> if you're interested in the project, go and uh, it, look it up on the web and, and, and sign up. Um, you can see we need all the help we can get. Um, I guess one area that would be kind of interesting is, you know, if anybody has anything that they think would be good to distribute in large volumes to members of the public to compute, then, you know, we'd be more than happy to hear um, from you. And I guess the other two bits are sort of 
somewhat interesting to, to Wes over there in the corner, as in, you know, currently we don't really use very many techniques of, of GPUs or, or big data, and it would be quite, uh, we're a sensible project, I think, with which we could um, try and make more use of those. So I'll just finish. Thank you for your attention and just leave you with a list of uh, some of the collaborators that we've been working with. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah.